0: We are continuing in this series in the book of Isaiah, and we have made it to chapter 42. It's a powerful chapter. This chapter is about one who's called the servant of the Lord. Now in the second part of Isaiah, which is where we are, there are several passages that make reference to the servant of the Lord And because there are so many, then Bible scholars have put this in a category called the Servant Songs. Now, in Isaiah's day, the Servant Songs contained a bit of mystery because the Servant doesn't have a name. He's just called the Servant. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that though the Lord has many servants in Israel's history and in the book of Isaiah, As the word of the Lord unfolds, the light shines on the identity of the true servant of the Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in a moment, but I want to just go I don't want to leave you in suspense. I want to remove the mystery at the front so that we don't have to deal with that a lot so we can actually talk about Jesus Christ from Isaiah chapter 42. Christ is the servant that the Lord gave. He cares for His people. He carries out His mission to establish the just rule of God over His people in this world. He gives us a new song to sing when we are under the rule of God and in the kingdom of God. And therefore, we need to hear Him and see Him. And love him. This is all in Isaiah 42. We're going to spend the majority of our time in just the first part, or really all of our time in the first part, verses 1 through 9 or 10. We'll touch on the rest, but if you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, I'll read those verses to us. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time In this first part of Isaiah 42, the first 9 or 10 verses here, I want to go ahead and give you, though, because some of you like this. I know you're going to go home, and you're going to be reading Isaiah 42 this week, and you'll want the whole outline, okay? So here it is. Part 1, verses 1 through 9, it's the identification and the ministry of the servant, Jesus. Part 2, verses 10 through 17, it's the new song that is sung by the people of the servant. And part 3 verses 18 through 25, it's the call to hear and to see the servant and the word of the Lord. So part one we're going to deal with today. He says in verse one, behold my servant. God is speaking. That's who the speaker is here. Behold my servant. But again, who is the servant? We've answered it, but I want to show you how we got there. Who is the servant? The answer has to do with how we understand the nature of prophecy and the Bible. It has to do with how we understand the whole storyline and the focal point of the Bible. So for some, the servant, they would say, must be someone or some group with an immediate impact on the current situation of these people who are in captivity in Babylon. Judah, God's people in captivity in Babylon. And since Isaiah said a servant is going to do these things, then the servant must be somebody who's going to get him out of captivity at that time. So they would say, maybe the servant of the Lord is Isaiah himself. Maybe it's the other great prophet, Jeremiah. Some say the servant of the Lord is really the nation of Israel as a whole when they finally get victory over their enemies. Some say the servant of the Lord is the remnant, the faithful ones of the nation of Israel. Some say it's some other deliverer, but someone. But when we read the whole chapter and really all of Isaiah, we see, and you would see if we, if when we start in verse 18, you'll see, that there are actually two servants. The first servant we read about, but there's one also in verses 18 through 29. This servant, he says, interestingly, is spiritually blind and deaf. This, This servant, starting in verse 18, is one who is in captivity. This is Israel. This is Judah. This servant of the Lord is currently in captivity and needs to be delivered. This servant is God's people who have sinned against him and rebelled and now are held captive. This is not, that servant in verse 18 is not the ideal servant that we just read about in verses 1-9. through No matter who you look at in the history of Israel, All throughout the Old Testament, you can think about Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah himself, all of these people, these great people in the Old Testament history of God's people, none of them were the ideal servant described in the first part of Isaiah 42. They all sinned. They all themselves were in need of a Savior and a Deliverer. They they can't be the one that God's talking about here in the first verses of Isaiah 42. So when we read this, we can look everywhere, but we're left looking and asking, who is the servant? So back to our verses, verses 1 through 9, it's a description of the ideal servant. Now remember something, okay? You might be new to the Bible. And here I am jumping in right in the middle of Isaiah and think, what what are we talking about here? Remember something about the Bible, okay? There are two Testaments. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. There's an Old Testament. That's the majority of the books of the Bible are in the Old Testament. And those are all the history and the way God worked in the the lives of His people before Christ. And then there's a New Testament. And that's the smaller portion, last part of the book of the of the Bible and that's about Christ's life and about his death and about his resurrection and it's about about the church after Christ so Old Testament and New Testament the Old Testament is the message to the people of the days to the people in the days of the of the Old Testament Israel and they were being called to faith they were being called to faithfulness to the covenant, that means the relationship, that God made with them. God said, I'm your God, you're my people, walk this way before me. And he warned them, if you don't, your unfaithfulness will lead to this. And the unfaithfulness of Israel led them to this captivity. But he also called them to hope. Because he always pointed to the future. The Old Testament is always pointing, if you want to understand the Bible, When you read the Old Testament, you need to understand it's always pointing forward, pointing to a future. In fact, the Old Testament is always pointing to someone in the future. Someone like Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant. We come to the New Testament, and the New Testament says that that future has a name. The New Testament says that that future one who's in, who God declares to the people of the Old Testament, has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the way this works. Let me give you an example. We're reading Isaiah 42 right now. The first three verses, remember, it's the Old Testament. It's about one that we're calling the ideal servant, the servant of the Lord. The first three verses tell us that he's chosen of God. He has the Spirit of God upon him. He won't cry aloud. He he won't be in the street. He's not going to break the bruised reed. He's not going to quench the faintly burning wick. Old Testament. I'm going to turn. You don't have to. You can write it down. I'll read it to you to Matthew chapter 12. New Testament. Old Testament pointing forward. A servant. No name given. We come to Matthew chapter 12. The name is given. It says, at that time, Jesus, there's his name, Jesus. First thing he does is he and his disciples go through the grain fields and they feast, feed off of the grain in the field. And they're opposed by the religious leaders. And Jesus is talking about how he feeds his people. And then the next section there is a man with a withered hand. And it happens to be, That uh, they want to know, can this happen on the Sabbath? And Jesus heals a man, restores a man. And all the religious leaders get upset because he broke the law. He wasn't supposed to do that on on, on Sunday. Or on the Sabbath, Saturday, sorry. And then we come to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 12. And it says this, all of this, the way Jesus treated these people, feeding them and healing them, the way Jesus treated these people, Matthew 12, 17 says... This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What? Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. There it is. The servant of Isaiah 42 is Jesus Christ who treats bruised reeds and faintly... Flickering wicks with mercy and grace and kindness. What do we do about that? Well, we say that Isaiah 42, Old Testament, was to Israel and to Judah in captivity, and it was to encourage them to keep looking, keep looking, keep looking ahead. They had a faint word. They didn't have a name to put with this servant. But they were promised that one was coming. And in their distress, in their captivity, they were called to keep looking, to keep in mind that the Lord is faithful. They were being called in the Old Testament to trust in their present time, trust the Lord and hope in his future and look to him and wait for the one to come. That's what faith looked like in the Old Testament before anybody knew the name Jesus Christ. Faith in the Old Testament looked like a person trusting God, looking ahead, believing he would deliver, setting their hope and their faith in him. And then What do we do with that? That's what we do in Isaiah 42. What do we do now? New Testament, Jesus Christ has come. He has fulfilled Isaiah 42. Now we see him. Now we see his ministry to us. Christ's ministry to us on behalf of God our Father. And faith for us is to trust him just as the people of the Old Testament did, to trust him. Behold, my servant. We're called today to see that that's Jesus. Back to verse one. The servant, Jesus, is chosen by God. Now this speaks of the eternal plan of God prepared by God to do something in this world for His glory. God is doing something in this world for His glory. He sent His Son 2,000 years ago, and He is going to send Him again, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. God has planned it. He planned it from all of eternity, and He has chosen the servant. He has a chosen servant to do this, This is the way God's choosing is presented in the Bible. It is never, God's choosing is never a second thought. It is never an afterthought, and it is never a choice between several options. The choosing of God is always according to the plan, the will, the eternal purposes of God. So God had a plan from all of eternity to do something glorious, Something great, something gracious in this world and his people through his servant, Jesus, and he chose him for that. It says that the servant is upheld by God, and that God delights in the servant, and that the servant has the spirit of God. Now, three people are mentioned there in verse one God, who's speaking his servant whom he's chosen and he's upholding and he delights in, and the spirit. Reminds us, doesn't it, of the baptism of Jesus when Jesus was beginning his ministry and he was baptized by John the Baptist. And it says in Matthew 3 that he did so to fulfill all righteousness. That's his mission. And that when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit landed, descended on Jesus, and a voice came out of heaven, the voice of God the Father, and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, the servant of the Lord is the Son of God who's been filled with the Spirit. Jesus, he has a mission. Verse 1 tells us Jesus has a mission. He will bring justice to the nations. As the Lord's servant, Jesus does the Lord's work. He said in John chapter 17, coming to the end of his life, he looked up to God perfect, perfectly. We all would like to be able to say this. Jesus said it perfectly at the end of his life. He was praying just before he went to the cross and he said, Father, I have glorified your name because I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. The mission of God is complete in Christ. And that mission in verse 1 of Isaiah 42 is that he will establish justice. He will establish justice. Justice is the just rule of God. That's the justice that Jesus comes to establish, the just rule of God. What does that mean? It means that it is the rightful rule of God. Verse 5 says that God is the creator of everything, and therefore God has the right to rule over all of his creation. This is the problem. It's the fundamental problem in the world, and that is the creation including the people in it, are in active rebellion against God. But it's God's creation. It's God's world. And for God to rule over it is his rightful rule. That is the just rule of God. We are gathered as a congregation declaring that Jesus is Lord. Imperfect, saved by grace, but imperfect people. We are gathering here to give a public testimony that there is a people who have now come back under the righteous, just rule of God by declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we're doing here. That's what this congregation and the church of Jesus Christ is doing every time it gathers. It is saying God is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and we understand that we are saved by grace and we are putting ourselves under the justice of God, the just and righteous rule of God. Of God. It's not only the right full rule of God, it's the righteous rule of God. In other words, God does it right. And when we bring our lives under His lordship, we are walking in His light. We are in the, we're walking in the kingdom of light. Justice that Jesus comes to establish on the earth and among the nations begins with God. It is the establishment of God's rule. It's his kingdom. It's his people living in it. It's under, the, under his kingship. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do, you, do, do we understand these words? Are we praying these words? We read them, we prayed them. Are we, are we praying them every day? Your kingdom come, justice on this earth, just rule of God. Within that, if we understand that justice begins with God. It is the the establishment of God's rule in our lives. When When we understand that as the beginning point, then we can start talking about justice among people. But without that, without the beginning point, the context of the rule of God over us, then what happens is social theories of justice abound and simply compete with one another. People seek justice in society without coming under the just rule of God. And because this is a broken and a fallen world, then all we do is have conflict over these competing visions of what justice looks like. And there is no justice in that. And there is no peace either. This is the whole nature of human life in rebellion against God. This is the history of, of humanity in rebellion against God and will be until the return of Christ when the rule and the reign of God is established fully and completely as Christ is Lord. But that doesn't mean we're hopeless. Jesus Christ is right now bringing justice to the nations by bringing men and women into right relationship with God. Jesus right now is establishing justice by bringing men and women under the just rule of God in the kingdom of God. A visible expression of this is right here in this congregation. This is a visible expression of people under the rule of Jesus Christ, the justice of God. Now Isaiah is going to speak of a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to speak of a final establishment of justice. It will come, and we're getting there in the chapters to come. But until then... The pursuit of justice now in this life will be effective as God and his laws and his principles and his truth and his word is honored. He's saying that to us later in the chapter in verses 21 and 24. That's the servant of the Lord and what he intends to do. And then verses two and three. How the servant Christ is going to fulfill his ministry and his mission among God's people. Look at this beautiful verse. These two beautiful verses. Verses two and three. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. The knots in these two verses, he will not do these things. These, these not are negative statements that are intended to, to highlight the positive truth about what the servant is going to do and how he's going to do it. Verse 2, he's not loud. And he's not going to do it in the streets. That probably means that he's not going to do it forcibly, except that he is going to forcibly put down the, the devil and the deeds of darkness by the power of the cross. He's not going to be violent he might, he's not even going to be obvious in the way that he establishes justice, the kingdom of God over people and cares for his people. Rather, if that's how he's not going to do it, how's he going to do it? He's going to do it by the means of the word of God and the work of the Spirit and the grace of the gospel message. Do you know how Jesus establishes his lordship? He establishes his lordship through a gospel call on the human heart. To repent and believe. He's not loud. He's not violent. He's calling by grace, in contrast, in contrast to the ways of men, in contrast to the ways of the nations who use intimidation and threat. And violence and war like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians did in the exiles day and has continued on through history. In contrast, Christ, through the gospel, Christ quietly taking over the territory of the human heart to expand the just rule of God's kingdom. And I have to believe it's happening right now. right now in this room years ago if you'll indulge me a minute of personal testimony years ago I sat toward the back of an auditorium like this and the Holy Spirit began to quietly with a call you ready for this? wage war for my soul he wasn't loud he didn't march he didn't coerce it wasn't violent except in the spirit realm it was violent because he was waging war for my soul but he began to take over the territory of my heart to establish the just rule of God in me Praise his name. I believe he's doing it today. Of course, people whose hearts are taken over by the justice and the rule of God. Of course, people go to make an impact in society in so many ways. But Christ is unlike those rulers of the world in the ways they act because Christ wins hearts. And Christ rules the world with grace and truth. Verse 3, how he treats his people. This verse is the one we quoted in Matthew 12. So we know it was spoken in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's one of the greatest encouragements in all the Bible. And we continue on with the knots. He does not break a bruised reed. He does not quench a faintly burning wick. There's a beautiful book, a Puritan by an old English Puritan, Richard Sibbs, called The Bruised Reed. You can find it online. Thank the Lord for the internet. That's the way this stuff should work. It should be pumping out this kind of good stuff, like old books that were written in the 1600s that you couldn't find in a bookstore. Click of a button, go find it, read it, called The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. We in this text, we, we're the bruised reeds. We're the faintly burning wicks. The people of the exile were. I want you to get the imagery in your head. It's beautiful poetry, isn't it? But it's so real. The people in the exile. The remnant. That means the remaining ones. The remaining ones in faith. The ones who really trusted God but still but still found themselves in Babylon. They're bruised. And they feel like the flame is about to be extinguished. And we're here today, followers of Jesus Christ. And we may be in faith, we may be trusting Christ with our whole heart, but still, we feel as if we are bruised and faintly burning. And we may be. And it says about the servant Jesus, there's so much that's going to be said about the servant Jesus in the, in the weeks to come in Isaiah, but in this one right here, in just this one servant song, it says, this servant does not break his bruised reeds. If you are bruised today because of your own sin, maybe you are contrite, your conscience is, is, is troubled because of your own sin, and you wonder if Jesus can ever forgive you. If you are broken, if you are contrite, if your conscience is stricken and you are turning to Jesus Christ, you are bruised in your conscience, he will not break you. Christ will forgive you. He is not that. He is this. He is a Savior. People in the New Testament, in the Gospels, wept before Jesus because they were bruised of conscience over their own sin, and Jesus lifted them up, and he spoke a word of grace to them. And Jesus is speaking a word of grace to any bruised reed in here today that says, I need forgiveness. He will forgive you. If you will fall before him and cry out for his mercy, you'll be washed. Maybe you're bruised today because of trials. Jesus does not tell you to suck it up. Those are not, the. those never came from the mouth of Jesus. That would be to break a bruised reed. Jesus says to you in your trials today, I am with you. He walked every trial you've ever walked. He walked the pain of it, maybe not the detail, but he walked the pain of it. And he walks it with you right now. He will not break you. You may feel like he's going to break you. But keep turning to him. Keep looking ahead. And and look beside you. He's walking with you. He gives you the spirit in every promise. Maybe you're bruised because you're in the throes of temptation. You know, sometimes we can be so tempted, we wonder if we're even Christians. Sometimes we can say to ourselves, if I'm a Christian, how could I have that thought? If I'm a Christian, why would that thought or feeling flash through my mind? I must not be a Christian. And that is not true. If you are a child of God, you can be tempted with the worst thought imaginable, one that you don't even want to tell anybody and you're bruised over that and the bible says that the devil the spirit led him out jesus the spirit led him into the wilderness but the devil there tempted him with unimaginable temptation and the bible says the new testament says that jesus was tempted as we are yet without sin and because he didn't sin he actually knows what it feels like to endure the temptation I don't know what it feels like to endure some temptations because I give in. Jesus knows what it feels like to endure the temptations because he never gave in. He always felt the stress. And so surely he can come to the aid of us in our temptation. He's not going to break us in our bruised state. Weak in faith, weak in hope. Jesus doesn't say, get over being weak. Jesus doesn't say, find your strength. Jesus said, Father, I pray for them. And Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus is with the bruised reeds. Any other need of your life, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, Jesus walks with you. Look at how he walked with his own disciples they weren't strong, they weren't powerful, they, weren't, they didn't get it right. These guys, were, these guys were always arguing about the most sinful and fleshly things with Jesus in earshot. And every time he corrected, of course he did, but he did not break, he kept with them. He stayed with them, he endured with them. And the, one of the greatest promises you will ever get in your mind as a Christian is the understanding that Jesus will endure with you all the way to the end. All the way to the end. He binds up, he heals, he forgives, he washes, he helps. How does he do it? By the Spirit. Every believer has the Spirit of God. We should find ourselves as believers in Jesus crying out regularly, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, help me. And by the Word, meaning the assurance of all the promises of God, strengthening our faith and our resolve. As Christians, we open the book and we look to it. I know we don't understand all of it. It it can be a complicated book. So find what you do understand. Work on what you don't, but hold on to what you do and let it begin to strengthen and heal. The Spirit, the Word, the church, we have each other. If we all have the Spirit and we all have the Word, then together we're helping one another. This I'm sure of. I have three things. I have the Spirit, I have the Word, and I have you. That I'm sure of. God has given me three things, and He's given you the same three things. We have the Spirit, we have the Word, and we have the church. And with those three things, Jesus is going to get us through. We may not have a lot. You may not have a lot. You, you, there might be some things you think you need to be a strong Christian, but you've got everything you need. The Spirit, the church, and the Word. You know what else he does? You know how else he does it? He does it with past, present, and future grace. Listen, if you're a bruised reed today, you need to look back and you need to see. That every bit of your past is covered by the grace of God. And you need to look right here in the present and you need to understand that this very moment that you live is accompanied by the grace of God. And you need to look to the future and you need to believe and trust that everything that you're going to face is going to be met with the grace of God. He does not break a bruised reed. Nor does he quench a faintly burning wick. Do you feel faint today? Do you feel like the light is dimming today? Oh, brothers and sisters, work with me. Let's not gauge our Savior's love for us by the state of our present emotional, by our present emotional state. Let's not do this. Let's not. This is not going to be helpful. Do you feel, though, like the light is dim Do you feel like it's becoming dimmer? Do you feel like your spiritual life is just diminishing? It's just shriveling up. Christ does not quench that. He does not berate you for flickering, for your flickering nature. What do you do with a flickering flame? Maybe you've had a, campfire or something what, what do you do with it you look at it and then you start to remove stuff around maybe maybe there maybe there's a rock on top of it maybe it's too much firewood on that little flame and it's going to push it out what do you do you start removing stuff well jesus loves you and if the flame is just flickering he may discipline you in me Start removing stuff that's quenching it. He'll just take it away. He didn't want to quench it. So he'll take stuff away that is quenching it. The sins of the flesh, the selfishness of our lives, the the whatever it is, he'll he'll discipline that out. He'll he'll, he'll purge that out so he can can get rid of it. To what? To give the, the flame, to give the faith some room to grow. And then what do you do? You fan it. And you blow on it or you start getting you know something and just, and trying to get a little air under there to fan up that flame that's what Jesus does with the spirit of god he goes to work in you in your spirit to fan it he says things like you're my child fanning the flame i'm with you fanning the flame and then he removing with some discipline and fanning it With the power of the Holy Spirit, he feeds it. He puts fuel on it. The Word of God nourishes you on his Word. He does not quench a faintly burning wick. He fans it into flame. Christ knows our frame. Christ knows our weakness. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we are bruised. He knows that we are faint. And he wants to bring us to life. And he will do it. I'm out of time for the rest of this section. I'll just close with verse 10. So sing to the Lord a new song. Oh, I pray. Let's pray that God would put a new song in our hearts that He would heal up, heal up our brokenness, that He would fan into flame so that we would have a new song. We're singing a new song to the Lord wherever we are, you know? Maybe, maybe we're going to sit in our situation for a while, but may God put a new song in our mouth, a song of faith, whatever condition let's turn to him are you a christian today is your conscience bruised because you you're coming to understand that that you're a sinner was your conscience bruised as you watched these four people be baptized and they were declaring that they trust in christ and this savior has washed away their sin seen in the symbol of the washing of the water here and that they've now been raised to newness of life coming up out of that water and you something inside of you said that I need that I'm not there that's not me that's real for me I need to know that is your are you bruised in conscience today to want that listen turn to Jesus trust Jesus today and if you're saying, I don't know how to do that, then come talk to us. We would love this. This is why we're here. And are you bruised and are you faint today? As a Christian, as a Christian. Bruised and faint, look to Christ. Look look to him. Look at him. Look at the fact that he was bruised, beaten. We're coming to Isaiah 53. We're getting there. But he was that for us in our place. He was battered and he was crucified. Look to him because if you see that that's what Jesus did for you, do you think he will abandon you? If he died to buy you, purchase you, redeem you, do you think he will abandon you? No, he will not turn to him.